morning, everyone. You can go ahead and grab a seat. Hello. <laughs> Good to see you all. It is a joy, again, uh, the last, last couple weeks to see more and more of your faces. It's been so long, so uh, truly happy to have you all here. Now, today I'm going to start with a quote first. Derek uh, Martin reminded me this morning that that is a horrible thing to do in English literature class in high school. But I'm going to do it anyways, because that's what, uh, that's what I've already planned. I said, tell me more in advance these things, not 10 minutes before I get up here. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. A.W. Tozer said that. And the question follows, what comes into your mind when you think about God? What image, maybe scripture passage, feeling, flashback, what expectations of God, what character traits? Let's pray together and sit with that question for a moment. Lord Jesus, we come before you and thank you for a chance to hear from your word. Pray first that you will bring to mind the things that we, each one of us has when we think about you. What is it? As we draw to your word this morning, we ask, God, that you will refine our hearts, refine our thoughts. May we see you clearly. May our love for you grow as we sit before your word today. Come, Holy Spirit, now and speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, A.W. Tozer thinks that it is the most important thing about you, whatever comes to your mind when you think about God. That's a big claim. He says this because he goes on to say, we tend by a secret law of, love, of, of the soul to move towards our mental image of God, whatever that is. And I think he's on to something. Today, our passage is about this, what we think about when we think about God. And as it turns out, it does really matter. So uh, we've jumped a little bit forward in Exodus this week. This is our second to last week of the series. Last week, we were in chapter 20, the Ten Commandments that Lloyd unpacked for us. And now we've gone all the way to chapter 32. And then in the in-between, God has been busy giving Moses some instructions on the top of Mount Sinai. Uh, the Ten Commandments were first, and then he gives God uh, some more details about how they're going to live out their life as God's people. Uh, how they're meant to live to be truly free as his people. From 21 to 31. And um, a big chunk of this is how they're going to worship as well. He describes how to build something called the tabernacle, which was basically their portable temple to go as they traveled around the wilderness. So God gives them all instructions on how are you going to live as my people and how are you going to worship as my people. And then he writes them on two tablets for them, the famous tablets, the, the, the iconic picture that you have in your mind probably when you think of the Ten Commandments. Uh, chapter 31, right before our text, ends like this. And God gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the very finger of God. So it's all been laid out. God's rescued the people from slavery. He's guided them through the wilderness, providing water and food all the way to the mountain, Mount Sinai, where they have this incredible moment of encounter with God. 
And then he gives them the two tablets of the covenant, these, these, uh, these stone tablets that say, how are you going to live as my people and how will you worship me? It's the moment we've all been waiting for, isn't it? And surely God wants to send Moses down the mountain and say, spread your wings and fly, people. This is it. This is your chance. You're all ready. Go and do it. I've been working on this plan ever since I met with your ancestor Abraham way back when and told him, you are going to be a light to all the nations. Your descendants are going to go forth and proclaim the good news of my name. Now their toolkit is full. They have all they need. Go and make me proud. I got to think that's what God's thinking, right? You'd almost expect them right there, and, right there and then to have a big tent revival meeting or something. Like, this is the moment. Or at least start construction on the tabernacle. Like, like get their hands dirty and doing some good work. But at this moment of great anticipation, wow, we have an epic failure, don't we? I mean, it's epic. It's really big. Like, think if you're a sports fan and you have a team, and think of the last moment your team had the chance to win it all, and they choke. And I'm going to try not to reference our British friends right now, but it's really hard not to look at you. And man, it was so close. Wow, that's painful. Sorry, Brits. But I'm always struck at moments like this in the Old Testament with how brutally honest the, author, the authors are about their people's failings. They're telling their story. They don't sugarcoat it, do they? This would be the moment to make up a little fib about something good. But no, Exodus 32 happens, and it's a massive failure at a time when you'd expect the storyteller to, to give us something good. For the Jewish people, Exodus 32 is such an epic failure that, that they parallel it to Genesis 3 which is the story of the fall, of all of humanity's fall, Adam and Eve's rejection of God. Now, in Israel's story, right at the start, when they're supposed to spread their wings and fly, they've been given everything they need. They ignore it and mess up. They say, thanks, God, for the advice. We've heard it. We'll take what, what sounds good. We'll scratch the rest. Well, today, we'll look at this story and ask, okay, what happened? What happened? When, what, uh, when Israel, when what they thought about God, really got off track. So we'll take that in three pieces. First, Israel's failure. Second, Moses' prayer. And then we'll return to Tozer's question. What do you think about God, and why does it matter? So let's look at verses 1 through 6 again to start and uh, think what happens. Well, Israel's failure begins with impatience. Let's look at verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this moment, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. Impatience. Remember though, Moses is the people's link to God. He's the mouthpiece, the go-between. He's the one who speaks to God and delivers the word. So without him around, they get scared. They're not sure what's going to happen. What if Moses doesn't come back? Then where will we go? He's our leader. He's the connecting point with God. This would be terrifying. Well, it seems that their fear leads to impatience. And impatience leads to a really poor decision. 
we'll, they say, well, we'll figure this out on our own. We're not sure what's happened to Moses. It's time to figure it out on our own. So then let's read what happens in verses 2 to 6. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool, made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It may not be immediately obvious, but the passage makes a point here about how many different ways the people reject how they've been taught to worship in the last 10 chapters of Exodus. There's a lot of things they mess up here. But at the same time, we also have to notice that it's not an outright rejection. They aren't saying, well, Moses is gone, so we're going to go over to the neighbors to find a new god to worship. Maybe Baal or Marduk or Asherah, one of these gods in the ancient Near East, the ancient world, they sound pretty good. Let's go check them out. That's not what they do. It's not as if I, as a Christian, just abandoned following Jesus and decided to become a disciple of Muhammad or convert to Buddhism. That's not the parallel. That's not what happens. Do you remember the first two uh, commandments of the Ten? Lloyd talked through them last week. I said there wasn't going to be a test on this, but he gave us a little visual. Uh, commandment one, have no other gods before me. Yes, yeah, some of you remember. Don't worry, I'm only going to number two. <laughs> commandment two, do not make a carved image. Of, of God. Don't bow down to, to them or serve them. Well, in this story, Israel really breaks commandment two more than commandment one. They don't directly place another God in front of Yahweh, but they do make a lesser image of their God, of our God. Israel takes what God has revealed about himself and they distort it. They make it a little bit more manageable. They pour God into a more palatable mold. They massage God into a more respectable, more familiar, more comfortable version. For them, it's a golden calf. It may seem weird to us, but that's what it's like in their world. In chapter 25, a little bit back, God had told Moses to build something called the Ark of the Covenant and to overlay it with pure gold. That's where the gold was supposed to be. And this box-like Ark... You might have been familiar with it from Indiana Jones searching or others throughout the centuries. It contained those tablets that God wrote on with his finger, and it was meant to represent God's footstool, his, his, uh, his pre is the nearness of his presence, the ark represented. That was the instruction, but instead, when impatience set in and fear set in, the people came to Aaron, and he built a golden calf a common image in their culture to represent the image of a god. Instead of the ark, they end up associating God's presence with a golden calf. Let's look at uh, verse 4, the end of verse 4. Um, and they say, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So, which mocks what God has declared throughout Exodus, that he alone was who rescued them, not this golden calf. Remember how God started the Ten Commandments. Lloyd uh, brought this out last week. 
Verse 1 of the Ten Commandments is really important. Exodus 21 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And Aaron, too, once the calf was built, what did he do? He leads the people then to worship it. Verse 5 says, when Aaron saw this, the calf, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. To the Lord. It's all just disappointing, isn't it? When we see the Lord here uh, appear in scripture like that in all caps, it means the Bible is using the Hebrew name of God himself. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh. And it's a further level of rejection, I think, for Aaron to use the name of the Lord to identify his presence with this man-made calf. Now, when we reject people we love, even, even softly, we don't normally use their name. Think of Peter, for example, our good friend Peter in the Gospels. When he's asked, do you know Jesus, this guy, when he denies him three times, I think it's notable that he doesn't use his name. Oh, I don't know him. I don't know that guy. I don't know what you're talking about. He can't bring his, himself to say his name. The scene then concludes in verse 6. And the people rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and they drank and rose up to play. So an altar is built, a feast is thrown, burnt offerings and peace offerings are given. All of these are, are described as elements of worship uh, in the book of the covenant that God has given them. But it's all distorted just a little bit. Take the feast, for example, that's mentioned here, the, the play that happens in verse 6. The NIV translates it revelry. In other words, it's the difference between a raucous, out-of-control party as opposed to a feast of communion with God and others. The distortion of God, the twisting of God's image, is why Israel's sin is such a failure here. Because it matters what we think about when we think about God. And Israel is thinking falsely about God. And you, you might know the pain, the frustration when false thoughts are said or or thought about you that are happening to you. You get word that people are saying or thinking things that you know aren't true about you. It's, it's painful. See, if Israel had just broken the first commandment and gone over and worshipped Baal, this would have been tragic. But it also would have been a little clearer. Repent from this heresy and turn to the Lord. But most of the time in the Old Testament, when Israel engages in false worship... It's syncretism, and that's a, a word that means mixing of worship of one God with others. So they mix it up a little bit, the worship of Yahweh, their God, with the others. And if we think about our own lives, most of the time when you or I engage in false worship, it's the same, isn't it? Getting things mixed up, the picture of who God is, our picture, our understanding of who God is, and worshiping that instead the Baal and the Marduk of our day, the idols of the city around us, they're clearer. They're prevalent, but usually at least you know when you're lusting after money or power or sex for fulfillment, at least 
usually have an idea that's going, not always, but usually. But the more subtle, more common idolatry is the invitation to recast the God that you know into a more palatable mold. To recast God into who you'd like him to be, a more useful God, a more controllable God, maybe a less offensive God. It's hard not to slide into that temptation, isn't it? Here's one common way that we can make God more useful. One mold, there's many, (laughs) just one. Instead of a golden calf, we'll call it the self-help God. The image of the self-help God is widely on market today. Here it is. God will tell you what to do with your life. He has a clear plan for you with clear directions Included in God's plan, you'll learn about your best career options, who to pursue romantically, or at least two to three good options. Maybe what charities to give to that will be emotionally satisfying for you. Maybe what friends you need to keep around, maybe what friends you don't. Other details may be thrown in. I'm caricaturing a little, right? But you get the idea, I hope. And all you have to do is be faithful at going to church and believing in Jesus, And this plan will be yours. (laughs) Have you ever been pitched the self-help God? The problem is that this isn't how God operates. At least normally, it's a golden calf. This is recasting God into a divine life coach with all the answers in his best-selling book. Right here, the Bible, B-I-B-L-E. Now, yes, God directs us, our decisions matter, but a God who brings utter clarity on our path through life is not who we worship. It's not been my experience, at least. It's not the the, the picture that scripture gives us, and I'm stressing this point about God providing clarity for our life decisions. Let me tell you a story about a guy named John Cavanaugh. John was a Jesuit priest and a professor at St. Louis University. In 1975, he spent time at his, in his process of becoming a Jesuit at the House of the Dying with Mother Teresa in Calcutta, India. John recounted a conversation he had with uh, her short, shortly before returning to the United States. The experience of being in this place with Mother Teresa had shaken him. And he was wondering what he was going to do with the rest of his life. So John goes to the saintly, now saint, Mother Teresa, and asks her to pray for him. He says this, I had asked her to pray for me. She said, for what? For clarity, I pled. And she immediately said, no. She would not pray for that. I complained that she seemed always to have clarity and certitude. I've never had clarity and certitude, she said. I only have trust. I'll pray that you have trust. Mother Teresa for you. Never, ever having clarity or certitude. Wow. Only trust. Now, I don't pretend to compare myself to Mother Teresa, but I do resonate with her here in some ways. When big moments in life have come my way, I've rarely had full clarity about what to make of it, and decisions. The desire desire for clarity and certitude can be a way to sidestep 
the call to trust God with our lives, our decisions, our days. It can derive from an unholy fear. We've been talking a lot about fear in this series. Well, the, the unholy fear is the sort of fear that's a fear of missing out on my best life, or a fear of taking a bold step, or maybe simply a fear of failure. None of these reflect trust. Trust is the core, the core of how we relate to our Father in the heavens, whose name is holy, who gives us our daily bread. This is how we relate to him, trust. So we don't recast this God into a divine life coach. God may seem more useful this way when things work out, but on the flip side, and I know some of you know this, is also true. If we expect God to provide a clear path and he doesn't, or, if, or the clear path we thought he'd given us all of a sudden isn't so clear or, the, or that it has failed, then God has failed. And if we don't recognize the truth that this idol is crumbling and it's an idol and not the true God, then our faith in the true God might sadly crumble too. This is why God wants you to know what he's really like, who he's really like. And sometimes it's painful, right? When our false images fail and fall away. But God will allow that. Because at the end, it's always better to have a, a sight, a good, right sight, purified about who God is and move closer to who he truly is. That's one mold. There's, there's many. Yours might, may be different. Your temptation may be different. Maybe you want to pour God into a divine rule giver because you know how to follow the rules. That feels good. Or maybe you want to pour God into a more socially acceptable mold so you're sure not to offend the right people. We're all tempted to do this. But if we're committed to hearing Scripture, the offense of the gospel is going to return because the bad news that you and I are deeply sinful must always come before and with the good news that we're more loved and sought after than we could ever imagine. And God wants you to know what he's really like, that he loves you and seeks after you more than you can imagine. Well, let's look at Moses' prayer. Moses gets into it with God here. Let's look at verses 7 to 10. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. Now, Moses is up, is up on the mountain. He doesn't know what's happened yet. Well, God fills him in to what's happened, and God is upset the posture God takes here is the posture we'd expect from a groom learning that on day one of the wedding, his bride has cheated on him. You feel the betrayal in the language. God tells Moses to leave him alone. He is angry and wants to destroy the people and keep his promise by starting over, by wiping them out and using Moses as a new Abraham to start things over. But Moses doesn't do it. He doesn't leave God alone. He doesn't back 
down. He prays. He jumps into the conversation, shockingly, and he implores God not to carry through this plan for three reasons. First, remember, God, Israel is your sacred, treasured possession. Second, God's reputation is on the line. If he does this, then Egypt is going to laugh at the rescue. Yeah, God rescued this people, but then he just smitten them in the wilderness. And then third, Moses reminds God of his promises and calls those to the front. Remember the covenant you made, God. Keep it. And God relents. He relents. He doesn't destroy them. Well, how do we handle this? This is a weird story about Moses convincing God not to do something. The story and others like it in the Old Testament remind us that God isn't a machine. He's not a formula. He doesn't hold a secret, unalterable map of everyone's lives ever and everything that has ever happened and that everything is going to happen. The conversation is focused on Moses and God's relationship and interaction. Apparently, what God reflects here isn't final, is it? Because while on the one hand we do affirm that God is an all-knowing and all-powerful God, yes, but on the other Moses makes the same assumption that we do when we pray and ask God for things. When we pray and ask him to hold off the rain for our picnic. Or we pray for safe travels. Or we pray for the cancer to go away. There's an assumption, right? That God has not yet made up his mind about how things are going to play out. There's some openness, or otherwise we wouldn't pray. We all assume this in prayer, whether we think about it or not, and it's one of the great mysteries that we're invited into the courtroom of the Almighty God and are allowed to make our requests known to him. It's the pattern scripture gives us, and it's the pattern even Jesus gives us. Father, if you will, take this cup from me, he prayed. Let's be clear, God's big purposes are not dictated by humans. He's going to do what he's going to do. He will complete the work he intends, restoring things. But he invites us to participate in the means and how it gets done. He invites us to pray and join in with him. It's amazing. We can pray. We can be ambassadors of his kingdom. We can make a real difference in our lives here and now. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And friends, God wants you to know what he's really like. He wants you to know what he's really like. He wanted Israel in the wilderness to know that he was different from the gods of their neighbors that were represented by golden calves and statues who couldn't be trusted, who couldn't speak, who treated people as slaves. He wants us to know that God isn't a divine life coach. He's not a machine. He's not a moral referee. He's not a divine pat on the back for a certain human program. None of that is who God is. He wants us to know his glory and beauty, his character, his true name. He wants us to see his face. In Exodus 33 to 34, God passes by Moses in all his glory. This beautiful little story coming up in Exodus. 
But God shields Moses from seeing his face. He puts his hand out. And God says that no one can see my face and live. But again, apparently, this isn't God's final word on the matter, is it? God eventually does decide to show his face in all his glory. Our good friend Peter and his friends, James and John, they saw God's face on top of a mountain. And the disciples and the soldiers and Mary and her friends and all the passerbys coming to and fro from Jerusalem on that dark day saw his face too. They saw his face, and guess what? Even though God said that anyone who sees my face is going to die, those people, they didn't die on the spot. But God did. It turned out that when God's glory was fully revealed on that cross, that the death that was required for a human to see God's face, when it was fully revealed, it was wrapped in self-giving love. God took that death on himself, the death that every other person who saw him deserved to die that day, and God stood in the way. Again, he held his hand and shielded, he held his hands open and shielded them. He upturned the logic of power and fairness in our world. He still does. He's not a God about making sure everyone gets exactly what they deserve, having it meted out in perfect fairness. Instead, he uses a law of sacrificial love. It's unbelievable to the logic of our world. It makes no sense out there because it's a power and a law from beyond our world. The cross, the Apostle Paul says, is folly to those who do not believe, but to those who do, it's the wisdom and the power of God. We can't be certain about how our lives are going to play out following this God. We don't know exactly how they're going to look when we decide to follow Jesus. But we can be certain about what God is like. His name is Jesus. And he wants you to know who he is. He wants all of us to know who he is and what he's like. He wants you to know his love for you. He wants you to know that he died for you. So that you can leave all those idols, all those false images of God that fail you and at the end of the day oppress you and come to a foot of a cross instead and find freedom and healing and new life and the wounds of God himself. Let me say that again. He wants you to be able to lay aside all those false images of God and come to the foot of the cross to see him rightly, to see him purely, where you can find healing in the wounds of God himself. Will you pray with me?